the Mayo Clinic about Ebola a few weeks ago, and by the end of it, one of the residents was crying. She's a nice, strong, good doctor, and I asked her to make a comment, and she said, I visited Sierra Leone as a medical student. I had great mentors and doctors, and they've all died of Ebola by now. Um, so she knew of people. Ebola strikes personally. It strikes close to home. Today we're going to look at Ebola as an example of being involved in missions, overseas work, and we'll provide a clinical overview, but we're going to provide that clinical overview by telling stories. We'll tell some stories about Ebola as it's related to me, because I'm a, an imposter. I don't really know about Ebola. Uh, but we'll tell some stories. We'll talk about some things, and we'll see some answers. So by the end of our time talking in about 58 minutes, we should actually know something about the epidemiology, clinical presentations, management, and prevention of Ebola. So we'll learn some of the clinical basics about Ebola by telling some stories, and hopefully it'll be useful. But my disclaimer is that I have never had Ebola, and I have never seen a patient with Ebola, um, so you maybe should believe other people that are around this conference. I had dinner yesterday evening with two doctors who have taken care of Ebola patients and then gotten Ebola. You'll be hearing from them as the conference goes on. There were two other doctors at that meeting, uh, that dinner meeting, that have taken care of patients with Ebola as well. There are real Ebola experts around here. Uh, but as one person and I were talking a few minutes ago, talking to a doctor that got Ebola might not teach you all the right things to do if you're going to be taking <laughs> care of somebody with Ebola. But there are a lot of real experts around here. I used to hope that I would see a case of Ebola working in what was then Zaire, Democratic Republic of Congo now, from 1985 to 1991. There was Ebola before and after and in different parts of Congo then. I thought it would be really cool to take care of a patient with Ebola. Fortunately, God had different ideas um, because it's not always that cool of a thing to do. And this year I was invited a different multiple times to go and take part in Ebola care, and I turned each of those times down, not because of the fear or the sorrow or waning adventure perhaps, but because God had other things for me to do. So don't necessarily believe what I say, but talk to people that have lived with Ebola and known. But I've heard a lot of questions because I care about tropical medicine and I've been to Africa that's somewhere near Peru where there might be Ebola someday. Uh, I get a lot of questions about Ebola and this started about beginning of April, late March this year when Ebola was hitting the news. And so one question that initially came up then was, what's the big deal? Is Ebola that big of a deal? Uh, and now we all think it is because we see it on the news a lot and indeed it is, but how big of a deal is it? Most of us here care about geography. Some of us like maps. And we know that the current outbreak of Ebola is, there's an arrow over on the map, is centered around Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, and this area of West Africa. The Ebola and the Ebola fears currently depend a bit on geography. Uh, we've got Susie just back from Kenya, Russ back recently from Kenya, People, when I went to Kenya two weeks ago, said, oh, are you going to get Ebola? And if you look at the map, the east coast of Africa is about as close to Ebola as the east coast of North America. So geography matters when we're thinking about Ebola, uh, but that doesn't really say whether it's a big deal or not. It's a big deal there. This is a WHO map reproduced here for you from last week showing West Africa. Um, with the countries where Ebola is, the darker the blue is the more cases they've had. The bigger the yellow dot 
is the more cases of Ebola they've had in the last three weeks. So you can see parts of Liberia, especially down toward the coast, but also up north and in Guinea and scattered through Sierra Leone, where there are lots and lots. In each of those province areas, the big yellow dots mean more than 250 cases reported and identified within the past three weeks. Ebola is a big deal for lots of people because they're getting it, their family members are getting it, it's disrupting communities, and it's disrupting life. As we look at the numbers of Ebola by country, we can see that there has been a lot of Ebola this year. This is unprecedented. It is by far the biggest ever outbreak of Ebola. Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia have been the main places where this has been happening. As of last week, about 13,000 cases with almost 10,000 deaths. This is a big deal. Lots of people dying, and each person represents a family and a community and a whole social structure and support system. So Ebola is a big deal. It's affecting lots of people. And when we look at healthcare workers, we feel personally affected because we know lots of people um, that have been involved with Ebola. Meanwhile, we don't hear as much about the Democratic Republic of Congo now. One of my sons just got back this week from a month in the Equateur, northwestern province in Congo. There's Ebola there now, or there was recently. They've had 66, death, or sorry, 66 cases with 49 deaths, and eight health workers have died of Ebola in northwestern Congo. But it's a different Ebola strain than the one going on in West Africa. So this is one of the normal little outbreaks of Ebola that happens to coincide with the big West African one, but genetically a different strain of Ebola. Um, they've had no positive test result in Democratic Republic of Congo. You're welcome to come in here. We can find seats. They're going around. All right, they've got clear spaces. Um, there's been no positive test for about a month there, and so Congo will officially be declared Ebola-free if we can make it another couple weeks without a case of Ebola showing up. So we think of the West African outbreak, there's been a concurrent smaller outbreak there. So some say, mostly these are teenagers that say, is Ebola like the worst thing ever? Uh, and I say, well, it's kind of like the worst thing. So... Is Ebola bad, and how do we put Ebola in context? Can everybody still hear me as the room's filling up if I'm not right next to the microphone? Okay. Um, so as a pediatrician, I think about other issues as well. 18,000 preschool-age children die each day largely of preventable problems. So Ebola is bad with 10,000 people dying already of Ebola, but there are 18,000 kids dying unnecessarily every day somewhere around the world. We've got, as I mentioned last night, about 3,400 people dying of pneumonia every day. We've got about 1,400 people dying of malaria every day. There are big issues going on that statistically are bigger than Ebola. Personally, in a way, they're bigger than Ebola. They're still affecting individuals and families and communities and societies. But we don't hear about it much because it's similar. I don't know current. I was just thinking about this last night. I don't know current... Uh, drunk driving accidents in the states, but I've heard numbers between 20 and 40,000 per year deaths from drunk driving accidents in the United States. There are lots of people dying of lots of devastating problems. So not to undermine the terribleness of Ebola, but to realize there are many terrible things going on, potentially preventable things going on, and things that we can take action for. God calls us to be involved in his worldwide kingdom building work, 
And some of us will be involved with Ebola, some maybe with drunk driving or with malaria or something else. Um, but there are lots of things going on. So where did Ebola come from? Working for several years in Democratic Republic of Congo, around the time that AIDS was starting to be recognized, I had a reporter come one day, um, came from Cincinnati, all the way to the middle of Africa, and he said, I was just nearby, he looked at maps like I do, um, he'd been about four countries away, he said, I was just nearby and thought I should come to see where AIDS started. So he came to go on rounds with me to see where AIDS had started, and he was terribly disappointed because I was seeing kids with malaria and gastroenteritis and pneumonia and meningitis and anemia, and after three hours of rounds, he had seen nobody with AIDS, and he felt disappointed. Then he went off to breakfast, and I saw two patients with HIV disease right after that, <laughs> uh, but he missed those. But he thought that AIDS came from Africa, and he thought it came from Congo, and he thought it came from the hospital where we were, and he was disappointed, even though it came from probably not very far from there. Um, since then, we can say, where did Ebola come from? If we look at historically what we know about previous outbreaks of Ebola, Ebola is an African issue. The first outbreak was in Zaire, now Democratic Republic of Congo, in 1976, 318 known cases with about 280 deaths. That same year, there was an outbreak in what's now South Sudan, the southern part of what was then Sudan, similarly sized, 284 cases, 151 deaths. There was a lull, fortunately for me, perhaps, when I was in Congo in the intervening years. And then later on, we had more cases in Congo, Uganda. And along the way, there have been smaller Ebola outbreaks in Gabon and Ivory Coast, and even in South Africa, a fairly small outbreak. And then in the Republic of Congo, Congo-Brazzaville. So as we look what Ebola has been doing in our known recorded history of Ebola, for the last three and a half, well, the last five, four decades, um, there's been Ebola in Africa, small-ish outbreaks. We didn't call them small with hundreds of people involved until this year. But small-ish outbreaks of Ebola in several African countries. Outbreaks come, outbreaks go. The current outbreak is different because it's huge and it seems to still be spreading. Um, so there's a lot going on. So Ebola seems to be an Africa sort of thing. For the pre-med student I saw this week, fairly far from Peru still. Where does Ebola come from individually? It's transmitted, it seems, mostly from fruit bats. This is somebody with gloves on holding a fruit bat. Um, so it seems to be a have a reservoir in fruit bats where fruit bats can be infected, can spread Ebola, and are unaffected. They're infected but unaffected themselves. They can stay healthy as they spread Ebola through their own bodily secretions. I did see a gentleman in travel clinic a couple of months ago, and he said, yeah, I thought I should come back to travel clinic because last time I was here they told me I should avoid animal contact when I was traveling. And he showed me this picture of him um, in Asia. Um, I'm not sure if that's a halo around his head the way the picture was taken or if it's trying to say he's really not a very bright guy. But that's him holding a fruit bat, and if you can see through the glare, the bat at this time is licking his arm with its saliva-laden tongue. As this man said, probably not the brightest thing to do. Uh, so where does Ebola come from? Um, has a reservoir and fruit bats and goes from there. So last April we got a phone message. Several of us were planning a CMDA, Christian Medical and Dental Association, conference in Greece. And we got a message, actually email message from somebody saying, my wife and I are a physician-nurse couple. We work in Guinea, and we want to go to your meeting in Greece next month. 
is that okay? This was a man that knew he was working in a country where there was Ebola. He was thinking about going to a meeting where there would be 700 Christian healthcare workers working in 70 different countries that would be in close fellowship for two weeks and then spreading out around the world with their encouragement, inspiration, knowledge, and germs. So he asked the question, can I go to the conference? How would you respond to that? Well, I hear yes and I hear no. I love controversy. Who said yes and why? Yes? All right, unless he was in direct, I'm repeating it for the microphone um, here that's recording it. Unless he was in direct contact with body fluids of somebody with Ebola, sure. And somebody else said, no, don't let him come. Who said no? Well, you're thinking about the, the psychology Oh, so he's thinking about the psychological implications. Why did we always have to say, if, or all of us say, if wow, Svea is even here. Good morning. Uh, oh, hi to you too, Steve. Uh, <laughs> So psychological implications matter with the fear factor. We've seen a lot of that going on in this country. So we've got the medical knowledge we need. We need to understand a little psychology and fear factor. Um, for the, you that are coming in, there are two prime back row seats up there, back row in the middle. There are a few scattered ones around here. Make yourselves at home. Come on in. So... How do we respond to that question? I can say how we responded last April. We said, well, let's think about the underlying science of Ebola. How does Ebola relate? This is such a great group of teamwork. People are holding up their fingers. I don't think they're saying if they have to go to the bath. I'm a pediatrician. <laughs> some have to go number one. Some have no. I think they're pointing out how many seats are available. That's very nice of you all. My pediatric mind sees that and thinks, okay, Dennis, you may go potty. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so we need a little science to answer the question. How would he get Ebola in Guinea? Ebola, we said, comes from fruit bats or H2H, human-to-human -human spread. The incubation is 2 to 21 days. Um, and so what we suggested at the time was what she said, no contact with a fruit bat or a sick person for the 21 days prior to the meeting, and he should be okay. Um, so if there has not been contact. We were doing this in April. Their fear factor wasn't quite as much, but it was going. But we had to deal with that a lot when planning a meeting. And you've had a sense before this meeting that the fear factor is a big thing about all of us. 2,700 people gathered here from dozens of countries and about to spread our knowledge, inspiration, encouragement, and germs. So we care about that. But this was a tougher answer for him because this was a doctor-nurse couple, and we said no contact with fruit bats or a sick person for the last 21 days. But what counts as a sick person? Lots of people in Guinea where they work have malaria. Malaria presents with fever and headache and body aches, the same way Ebola can prevent, present. So that's a tough one. Uh, most people with Ebola get pretty sick within 24 hours of starting and show other things going on, so you can have clues. But there are some tough judgments in all this. And then as Lance mentioned last night before the plenary, we now have expanded knowledge, and we know that there are good guidelines that are actually based on reasonable science about how much contact people should or shouldn't have and how carefully they should monitor themselves if they were just in the country or around patients that they didn't think had Ebola or did, but were having personal protective equipment, 
or in that higher risk groups, they were around patients with Ebola without appropriate personal protective equipment, so how much they should be around other people in the subsequent three weeks. Related to science and the fear factor, the organizers of this conference right now have invited five people coming from Ebola countries to come in next year instead of this year. Um, I think we're all probably safe here, and I don't know that anybody from Peru is going to have it either. Um, those that came in late didn't hear that somebody I saw this week was afraid of getting Ebola in Peru. Um, so we need knowledge. So another question came up. Steve's here. He was involved with this question with us. Um, the question came, a man arrives at a mission hospital in rural Guinea with a fever and bloody diarrhea. The hospital, April 2014, the hospital had no isolation rooms. Should they see that patient? Or should they lovingly invite him to head down the street to another hospital that was better equipped to handle potential Ebola cases? How would you have responded to that? Depends on how far down the road it was. It was eight miles to perhaps a less high-quality hospital, but with official government help and more gowns and masks and gloves. Yeah. So those are tough questions. Other thoughts? Um, well, he's in the taxi about to get off, so we haven't done a whole exam. <laughs> So we're making, oh, actually the email and the taxi were not perfectly linked in time. Um, but so part of this is how much are you going to evaluate him? And if you don't have much real personal protective equipment, how much are you going to find out how stable? Talking, breathing, coherent. Love him, take care of him. Encourage him to go to a place that can love him perhaps less, but take care of him more effectively. Pay the taxi cab. Driver, we don't think we're safe with him. We'll pay you to spend a little more time with him. <laughs> taxi cabs have been a big issue in Liberia because they transport patients who leave their bodily fluids for the next people in the taxi cab. Um, so these are tough issues. April 2014, the people in that hospital in Guinea referred the patient to another hospital. Um, he went there, and then the hospital ramped up fairly quickly their Ebola treatment possibilities so they could take care of somebody that did have Ebola. This is a challenge because there are lots of people with Ebola in West Africa that have overwhelmed the capacity of healthcare systems. So this is an ongoing challenge. There's something either about Boy Scouts or the Bible or both that says be prepared. Watch and be ready, and that's why we're here. We want to watch and be ready and have appropriate, appropriate care. Logistics do matter. We've talked about Ebola in Dallas in the news, but Ebola in West Africa is a bit different. Um, the logistics do matter when people have open sewage running in front of their houses, no electricity, the water only runs if somebody picks up the jerry can with it and runs down the road with it. So hygiene and sanitation and management of bodily fluids can be a real challenge. Lance, I was with on the stage last night, sent me some of these pictures as he was in Liberia dealing with Ebola, and it's a personal challenge to be able to deal with this. When you have equipment available, you can put on multiple layers of gowns and foot coverings and rubber boots and goggles and head wraps and multiple layers of gloves. You can spray yourself off with Clorox or some other germ-killing sorts of things. And you can go through a 20-minute get dressed and a 20-minute decontamination afterwards. There are systems to be able to deal with this, 
but these are very difficult logistic systems to be able to manage patients with Ebola. That's why we're here. This morning is the introduction. You'll get more details in other sessions in this conference about how to deal with this, but we need to. And then after you've decontaminated and gotten out, you've got to have a place to take care of all the boots and the gloves that you're going to be reusing for the next time somebody goes in. This is a boot and cloth drying line at a place in Liberia a few months ago. Um, it's not just Christian groups, but other groups that have been involved. This is MSF's goggle drying place. We need equipment, we need personnel, and we need training to be able to use things wisely. So if we're going to get the hospital in rural Guinea set up, it's not just a matter of, oh, send them some gowns and gloves. We actually have to think through this, have adequate supplies, adequate training to be able to take care of things. I was just told by somebody a few minutes ago that he's going to the CDC's three-day course to prepare him to be able to be observed and tested on site to see if he's safe taking care of Ebola patients. Uh, if we're going to be sending all of us, there is training available, but it does take some wisdom to be able to take care of Ebola patients with a lot of non-physician engineering. There are some fairly rapid diagnostic tests available for Ebola, but as recently as four months ago, this guy was paddling his canoe or punting his canoe or whatever standing up across a river that marked an international border between Guinea and Liberia carrying blood samples to the Ebola testing lab. Um, rapid diagnostics sometimes aren't available or quite as rapid in the sorts of places where some of you are working. Um, welcome to the back. There are a couple seats down front. Russ White's not a scary guy, and he has a seat next to him right there. Uh, so other questions that come up about Ebola, people said, well, we treat other viral infections. Why can't we treat Ebola? That's a reasonable question. Why don't we just give medicines to treat all this? This is Harrison next to Lance. Harrison was the first survivor of Ebola in Liberia during this current outbreak. Why did he survive? It wasn't from fancy medicines and transfusions and antibodies. It was because of good supportive care. Supportive care does matter, and it does work, and it can be very helpful. And that's the mainstay of taking care of patients with Ebola. We need to be able to provide help for fluids and electrolytes and nutrition. We need to be able to support them hemodynamically. We need to be able to support them with blood products if they've lost too, many, too much blood through the various bleeding problems. And besides the physical supportive care, Ebola is a terrifying problem when the only people that will talk to you are speaking through multiple layers of impersonal things, when you've been separated from family members. So supportive care does matter. What about specific treatments? It's rather exciting scientifically to see what's happened in the fight against Ebola. It's exciting to realize that in a matter of six months with the current West African outbreak, pharmaceutical development is ramped up, vaccine development is ramped up, clinical trials have bypassed some of the usual bureaucracy and have been able to make good progress. I mentioned on this slide three sorts of treatments that have been tested with some promise of working in at least some primate sorts of species. The BCX4430 um, works on RNA polymerase function and it works in mice um, with Ebola and with similar Marburg disease in monkeys to stop virus replication 
to make the mice or the monkeys get better and recover more. Past epidemics of Ebola in humans have had about a 90% mortality, or about 55% or so, 60% with the current West African outbreak. Most of the gains have been related to supportive care. But there's potential that these medicines might be useful. This other one, Fabipapir, um, works in different ways to block viral replication. That one has not yet been tested in primates, but is in the process of working toward that. But it seems to help experimentally infected mice with Ebola, and so there's potential that either of these two medicines might work. But along the way, God is redeeming tobacco. <laughs> we have concerns about the health effects of big tobacco, Meanwhile, tobacco plants are being used to mass-produce anti-Ebola antibodies. So by making little plasmids that can then insert genetic material into tobacco plant genes and then allowing the tobacco plants to grow, we can harvest antibodies against Ebola from tobacco plants. So Lance that I was with on the stage last night was with Kent Brantley and their wives yesterday about two hours from here looking at these tobacco plants that are within two months of being harvested with great volumes of anti-Ebola antibodies. It takes a while to do this, but there is potential that these antibodies would work. They're currently working with a combination of three specific monoclonal anti-Ebola antibodies. These antibodies, when injected to people, could have the potential of blocking the ongoing action of the Ebola virus to help people get better. This antibody, ZMAP, is one of the coming brand names of this. It seems to work in monkeys, even in monkeys that have already been sick with Ebola for several days. So there has been experimental evidence that these antibodies might work. Will they work in humans? We don't know. Four patients, I think, have been treated with these antibodies. Supposedly, three of them survived, um, but I've seen different reports in the news. Not all news media have peer-reviewed reports reviewing all the data. Uh, I know these people know whether they survived or not, but I think at least one of the people that got it, I think it was in Spain, did not survive after, even after treatment. The others have survived and done well. Is this coincidental, or did the medicine actually help? I did see a report once in a parent's magazine saying that intravenous vitamin C was effective against the common cold because in that study, every patient that got intravenous vitamin C for seven days recovered from their cold. <laughs> this was written as if it was a serious medical breakthrough. So of the th patients we know, some of whom we love and are around this meeting, that have gotten ZMAP, they recovered, was that coincidence or were they going to recover anyway? First-hand knowledge of these patients suggests that the way they were headed quickly downhill and the way they quickly recovered after the medicine, that gives good anecdotal evidence and suggests that indeed the medication is helpful in reversing the course of the disease and aiding healing. But we don't really know that for sure yet. 
Is it ethical to try this when we haven't done all the animal studies? Scientific and public opinion now says yes for the last few months. It's worth expediting this. Keep growing the tobacco in Kentucky that has the plasmid inserted genetic material. Produce monoclonal antibodies and let's see if it works. And there is some reasonable sense of human hope that perhaps these antibodies will be useful in more people. So then another question that comes up is, well, can't we just prevent Ebola? That would be much better than waiting till people are sick and dying and then treating them. Sure, we can prevent it if we avoid all bat contact, at least with the infected fruit bats, and if we avoid all contact with infected humans. That's straightforward and fairly easy to say. Not easy to do if you live in West Africa or if you've been called by God to help people living in West Africa these days. Uh, but there are avoidance measures that can help, but we need scientifically appropriate avoidance measures. I've heard of children in the northern United States not letting their children, or parents in the northern United States, not letting their children attend school because one of the school teachers had visited a friend in Dallas the previous weekend. The friend was miles, dozens of miles away from the hospital where anybody had Ebola. So we need to avoid, but we need to be sensible about what we avoid and what we do. Vaccines have had some success in monkeys, um, so there is potential that there will be humanly useful anti-Ebola anti vaccines. Uh, research on those is being sped up as well. A couple of months ago, there was a big meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, to talk about where we're going with Ebola. They talked about a lot of things. At that time, the thought was, for now, the next best step is harvest serum from the 40% that are surviving Ebola and use their serum to give to people that have Ebola, thinking that that will be either Hippocrates' good humors or antibodies um, or cytokines or something. But the thought then was using serum from Ebola survivors could be useful in the treatment of other patients. We know that's been done on a limited way. Um, people that have survived Ebola have given blood or serum that's been useful to people with Ebola. We don't have great data to say how much that helps. We don't know about concentrations and details. Uh, but that was a suggestion two months ago. Since then, there have been two more of the monthly expert meetings um, hosted by the World Health Organization in Switzerland. And as a result of those subsequent meetings, there has been a fast tracking, an expedited process of working on vaccines and advancing medications against Ebola. There are two different vaccines that are being tested in humans. Um, early results look promising, but we don't know yet. But things have been moving fairly quickly over these last couple of months with vaccine development with two vaccines and with the different medicines that we talked about, with most of the emphasis now seeming to be on the combination of the three monoclonal antibodies. So how do we all get involved with Ebola? I like chocolate ice cream. And when I go open our refrigerator and freezer to get chocolate ice cream, I see lots of people that I can be praying for around the world because we have prayer magnets on our refrigerator and freezer. And it's a reminder to me that we can all be involved in lots of things going around the world by praying for people that are involved, uh, by praying for people that are there. So as this whole Ebola thing was going on this summer and people that we know were getting famous, I realized that, wow, right there by the chocolate ice cream handle, my <laughs> wife had put up a picture of Kent and Amber Brantley and their kids. Uh, we can all be reminded to pray for people 
whether they're on the headlines of the BBC News or not, we can be praying for our friends and colleagues that are scattered around the world. So whether we're going to a place with Ebola or not, we can know what's going on. We can be praying for people, whether they're friends of ours working there, local people living there. God actually wants us to pray. The fields are white unto harvest for many things. Uh, we can be praying for people that are working. But then we can take some examples a step farther if we're going to be praying people. How would we pray? How would we pray if we were dying of Ebola? One of the most touching things to me and most spiritually challenging, gripping, and encouraging um, was hearing what Kent Brantley happened to say to Matt Lauer, filmed on the Today Show. Um, it says, the question came up of how do you pray when you think you're dying of Ebola? How would we pray if we thought we were dying of anything? And Kent's answer was, he prayed, I want to be faithful to you, God. What a gripping testimony for all of us. Is our prayer in health or in sickness? Wow, I hope this works out. I hope this is comfortable. I hope this is easy. I hope I can go do this cool thing. Or is our prayer, God, I just want to be faithful to you. I think we can all be challenged to say that. Will we be faithful to our own calling as physicians, as nurses, as healers, as Christians, as international health workers? Um, if we're going for a higher calling, that one that called us um, is the one that we get to be faithful to. So I think we can all be challenged personally to be faithful. And if we are involved in this, front lines or not, we can take Rick Sacra's encouragement. Um, this is not too personal, at least it was in the public news media, um, where Rick said after he came down with Ebola in Liberia, he said, that's okay, Jesus is right here with me. What a testimony to read in the popular news media reports. Whatever happens is okay. This sounds like Rick obviously knows Matthew 28. Wow, as you go... I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. What a testimony. So God was with Rick in Liberia, and then in Nebraska, and then when he got sick three weeks ago in Boston again, and he's with him here with all of us at this conference again. So I think the challenges for us with Ebola are many. We need some scientific understanding so we can deal with this appropriately without unusual fear, but with adequate caution and precautions. We need to be caring about people and working logistically to help systems, to be working compassionately to help patients and families and communities. And we need to be involved with advancing science as vaccines and treatments are developed. But we need to remember that already we have the compassion and the supportive care that can make a difference in saving many people. So we have ourselves a bunch of time left because I am guessing there's a lot of enthusiasm and comment and question um, because many of you are here with experience with Ebola or questions about Ebola. So what comments and questions do any of you have about Ebola? Yeah. Uh, for countries in the region, how can we help those countries uh, educate the people, prepare the people effectively to reduce the fear factor? Because it seems to me miscommunication is a big part of the problem. So the observation, I'm repeating it for the microphone that's recording this, observation that miscommunication has been a problem. What can we do in involved areas to help against that fear factor, to help people more effectively be able to help? I'm going to throw that back to everybody here. What can we do in, for individuals and communities? Yeah. Um, for the nations that have an intact public health structure, support them. Ivory Coast just got back in three and a half weeks ago. 
They're doing a good job spreading the news, getting around. Even in the villages, they do not eat raw meat or meat recently donated. They have hand washing. They're taking this as an opportunity. Two for nations where it's been destroyed, such as those that are being touched on so heavily. Liberia, Guinea, and um, Sierra Leone. Where they've had that structure to create something. Use something like community health evangelism. Work hard to where you get a development at the village level so the news gets passed. So one good answer, just summarizing it here. I think people could hear you, though. A um, couple ways to go. One is if there is an intact public health system, use it. It's worked in... Ivory Coast, as you mentioned, Nigeria's Ebola outbreak when it spread there got squelched fairly quickly, 20-ish people affected, that's still tragic, but it did not spread as much as it would thought be. So use the public health system for education and implementation of hygiene strategies to help. When there's not a public health system, we need to work with that. I have a friend with the CDC who's right now in Sierra Leone, um, and they're taking the approach, she and her colleagues, of how can we work with communities and through churches to be able to mobilize people to take good care and respond appropriately. A huge challenge. We were all grieved when we saw that healthcare workers in Guinea were killed because they were trying to educate about Ebola. The same kind of a fear factor that's related to deaths of polio vaccine workers in other countries. So education and information given in appropriately, culturally acceptable ways with the people, by the people, for the people um, can be a good effective strategy. There were some other hands, yeah. Did anybody come in since we started that's taken care of a patient with Ebola in this room? Okay, I'm a faker. I will make up an answer. Um, there are people in this room, there are, not in this room, there are four physicians at this meeting who have each personally cared for hundreds of patients with Ebola. Um, so they'll be able to tell you from personal experience. As I understand it, and Steve, you might help me too, but as I understand it, it usually starts with fever, headache, malaise, achiness, and within a day progresses to prostration, being really, really sick, and often with hemorrhagic problems. Nosebleeds, rectal bleeding, gum bleeding. So a fairly rapid onset from the beginning of high fevers with achiness and headache on toward hemorrhagic findings within a day or two, and then really sick, depending on fluid status and anemia, um, progressive on, progressing on to multiple organ failure and death over one to seven days. Is that fairly accurate, Steve, from what you know? I was thinking about asking the same question. <laughs> <laughs> the ignorant lady. Yeah, was that an answer or another question? Uh, it's sort of an answer. Good. Uh, Do you actually want to walk down and talk into the microphone? <laughs> Seriously. I just, uh, I just thought I'd add that uh, there are uh, significant GI symptoms as well. And our biggest problem was uh, uh, really the differential diagnosis because uh, not only loss of fever is around, which is a hemorrhagic fever, but uh, there's a lot of malaria and there's a lot of typhoid. And so when somebody walks in the door, the question is, is what do you have, something bad or something really, really bad? <laughs> but uh, some of those things are treatable more than others, and the uh, fatality rate is more than some of the others. But the, the bottom line is you don't know what you've got, and so the triage process is critical. And you want to be very, very careful about letting those people inside your hospital before you have them tested. Uh, but the GI things is something you, I don't think 
So I'll summarize that for this other microphone. GI, or GI symptoms are fairly pronounced early on, um, diarrhea and abdominal pain mostly, I think, um, and a lot of vomiting, spreading bodily fluids. And then secondly, I mentioned the triage system is vital because Ebola initially looks like malaria and typhoid and lots of other sorts of things, including some other bad things like loss of fever that fortunately are not as fatal as Ebola usually. Good. Thank you for that. Yes. Two weeks ago, Guinea, the question was, what about Guinea? Two weeks ago, Guinea was labeled the most economically deprived country in the world. Congratulations, Guinea. Um, so this is happening with limited infrastructure, not much public health infrastructure, some scattered work of a bunch of Christian groups, and MedSense Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders, has been working there. And I think in Guinea it's MSF that's been most responsible. Now going through the capital and chronicry, WHO and others have been working to get supplies into Guinea and distributing them, but it's been tough. Steve is an expert about Guinea. Do you have something to add there? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's why I said we all need to pray, yes. Uh, um, so Guinea has been a challenge. Interesting in Guinea, despite some roads in the country, there are pockets of Guinea that have not yet seen cases of Ebola. Um, so this hospital I mentioned that we had heard from in April, their whole province not yet has had one case diagnosed as Ebola, even though it's been around some. So it's in different part of the country and spread, um, but it's still that proverbial time bomb uh, without everything being set up to fully handle it. So we can keep praying for Guinea. Yes? Question on um, the strains of Ebola that are involved uh, germane to vaccine development. Can you give us a brief overview of what we're seeing over there? Yeah, vaccine question. One of the challenges with vaccines is will the vaccine actually hit the core parts of Ebola virus that don't change with the different strains. So as we develop vaccines, we have to see most of the vaccines are being used with the original Ebola, sorry, the original Zaire strange. Um, so they're labeled with Zaire in the name of them. Um, that's the strain that has been active in West Africa now, small genetic differences with the current Congo one. But it looks like probably the current vaccines being developed will work for the variety of strains. But that's a look like without uncertainty, and that has to be tested uh, because some of the genetic differences don't make a big difference in the recognized antigens that are being attacked. Um, so a good question to be pursued and being looked at. There was another hand here somewhere, I think. No? Okay, go ahead. Ebola is trans so the contagiousness question. Ebola is transmitted through contact with body fluids from a sick person, or maybe if they're about to get sick within the next few hours, they might already have active virus in their secretions. Without that body fluid contact, you shouldn't get Ebola. So if you're just being breathed on from far enough away that 
It's not a spray sort of a breath. And if you're not handling bodily fluids, you should be okay. How long does Ebola live in bodily fluids? I'm looking to see if anybody else looks like they know. I don't know. Studies of other viruses in body fluids say it's easily up to eight hours it can live, depending on how juicy the secretions are on the counter or on the taxi seat. Um, so we at least have hours of viable transmissible virus with similar viruses. So I'm guessing it's 8 to 24 hours. I don't know that anybody's actually studied yet to say just how long. Uh, Ebola virus is present in breast milk of nursing mothers. It's present in sexual secretions as well. And it's present, obviously, in the blood and the urine and the saliva kinds of places. Um, yeah? If, in fact, this, the fruit bat is the primary source of the disease, not other so why not just tell people not to eat bat meat? Um, so I'm told that part of the success in Nigeria was telling people not to eat bush meat, what they call in some parts of West Africa bush meat, which you don't really always know what you're getting. It's gone through a couple of people between the bush and the table. So is it really rats or goats or bats or whatever other animals. Uh, but that's been part of the public health campaign that has been employed, encouraging people not to eat bush meat. People are starving. People are dying of malnutrition. We don't want to cut off all their food supply. It's like telling people we don't want deforestation. Don't use those trees to make fires. All right, then I can't cook my food. And then, So how do we balance all this? That can be tough. But a good point, um, avoiding bush meat, avoiding eating bats or any contact with bats is an effective part of current strategies. Dan, you had, yeah.
do we believe this person is a possible Ebola patient? And we had a triage tent that we would send them to for hours or literally up to days. And this is a few months ago when the testing turnaround was not so good. So we might have to wait for not only hours but days until we would get our test back. I was working in Liberia and, and the, the laboratory was some 45 minutes away at the airport. Don't ask me why. But uh, not only that, the problem was getting somebody to draw the blood and then transport the blood. And as uh, uh, Dr. Fisher uh, showed you the, the, uh, the uh, canoe uh, transport system, uh, we didn't have to worry about a, a river. But believe me, people don't like this disease and they don't like to have anything to do with it or have anything that uh, speaks of a hole anywhere near them. So getting that, getting that blood drawn, uh, getting somebody to do it, somebody to transport it and then to, to get that result and get it back was a problem. We did have CDC involvement in that lab, so we were very comfortable with the results that we got, but the turnaround was definitely a problem. So we said, if we think you have Ebola, you sit around in that triage tent, unfortunately, until we find out. And so you have a real issue of cross-contamination, but it's, again, this is the real world. you got to do what you got to do. So uh, that said, we would be careful on the side of our staff and the, as careful as we could be with not cross-contaminating people. But until you know whether somebody has it or not, they sit there and you observe them, you support them, whether they've got, as I said, whatever they got. And then if you have a positive, then you move, we move them into our world. And then what did you do if they were positive? We sent them to the Ebola unit and we treated them So you're Ed, right? I can't read your name. You're Ed, yeah. So Ed's been working in Monrovia in Liberia, good experience. To summarize, if you didn't hear all that, an organized triage system, potential Ebola, test and put in a triage tent to wait, and then if they're negative, out, realizing they might have been hanging around people with Ebola for hours and then get sick later, um, and if they're positive, into the Ebola treatment unit. With their, their leveled way of isolation, where healthcare workers had face shield, mask, gown, and gloves, but not the whole thing when they were triaging. A very practical, relevant, feasible way, um, and thank you for those comments, Ed. And then, Steve, sorry, we'll come back. So the, the question about rehydration and what role that plays in treatment. The answer is that was the, the, the key. That was the, the, the first line. Uh, everything we did was oral rehydration until or unless uh, people could not uh, uh, take fluids, then we would uh, put an IV in them. But uh, that was the first uh, echelon treatment. Uh, we would also treat them for nausea and uh, for fever. A great reminder to all of us that if faced with a terrible disease killing 60 to 90 percent of people, lives can be saved with rehydration, even given orally. A great reminder, yeah. What about the, uh, like this gentleman asked, did you do any rapid test, um, testing uh, 
typhoid while they waited for two days and they had cholera or typhoid? How yeah, and, and again, this is really a conundrum that I will just interject that uh, Nancy Wrightwell uh, became symptomatic on a given day and she had malaria parasites in her blood. And so our initial thinking was this lady has malaria and then she became positive for a good reminder that especially in Africa, people can have multiple diagnosable pathologies at the same time. Yeah, Ed, thanks very much. Yeah. yeah if I was going to uh, get into that taxi cab, do chlorine wipes, if I wipe it down, can I decontaminate? So as I understand it, chlorine, what's in bleach and in Clorox, chlorine is effective in killing the germs. But then you've got all the tangibleness of how do you wipe it, where is it, what else is being touched, did you wipe it all. It should kill fairly quickly, but I don't know if fairly quickly is really 10 seconds or two minutes. We get into practical things when you're getting into the taxi. So that's a challenge. Yeah. Regarding vaccines, I know there are two vaccines uh, being tested, but my question is how can we take so long to develop it and fully use it? They say that it's going to take another year or two. Yeah, vaccine development takes a long time because you have to say which antibodies will the vaccine stimulate? Are those the effective ones? We're going to test in people, but are we going to test in the same kind of people or people that are genetically and immunologically different? And then what do we measure to say it works? Having an antibody response is nice, but we don't know if the measurable antibodies really correlate with disease protection. So it just takes time to do the studies and work through it. The best studies will be done in people in areas where there is Ebola that are genetically similar and then see if it protects them from getting Ebola, but we're not going to purposefully expose them to see. So it's just the tangibleness. I think a year or two to get an Ebola vaccine is actually pretty quick. Uh, we're still waiting for an HIV vaccine, which is different because it's intracellular. Um, but, yeah, it takes time, but people are working on it. Yes? Yeah, why does it go dormant and hide? I don't know how dormant it really goes. Spending a fair bit of time in Democratic Republic of Congo, we're not testing and reporting. We see people that get sick and die and might call it malaria or typhoid or pneumonia. Maybe there's Ebola circulating more all the time, but it's in closed-knit village sorts of settings. So we don't know. The dormancy seems to relate to it being in bats and the bats stay healthy with it. Um, and then what makes it trigger from bats to one little village versus a big village they travel to versus wildfire in West Africa. I don't know that anybody really knows that. Somehow this jumped in. Why didn't it spread in Nigeria where there were lots of crowded people sharing body secretions in a fairly big area with a high population density? Uh, I don't know if anybody knows those answers. Yes. A Nigerian who taught in Abidjan with me gave credit to medicinal plants in Nigeria said that their president um, authorized something against the advice of others, and that's what stopped it. So, yeah, Bob Watt is here. Bob's doing some studies with medicinal plants that might be effective with Ebola as well. Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. What's 
So from when they get the virus to when they test positive, Ed, you can help me, but I think once they're symptomatic, they're usually positive. With the, Okay. And there are different tests, different sensitivities and specificities. Good, yeah. Uh, final question. Yeah, I mean, as a non-medical uh, professional, uh, I hear a lot of talk about solutions to the problem once you have it, the diagnostics and the triage, uh, and all the triage and all this sort of stuff. But fundamentally, it seems to me, I've, I've lived in many African countries, fundamentally the issue is how do you change behavior and people if indeed, again, these bats, these fruit bats, is the primary source of the, the virus, how do you get people, you educate people to stop using the, uh, eating that particular meat? You can't tell people to do, never eat meat again. That's ridiculous. But certainly, it seems to me, in the age of cell phones, all sorts of mass media communications, we can convince people not to eat fruit bats. I mean, and that's where we, I mean, we, we need to quadruple down on that part as opposed to the curative very excellent points about education mattering. In fact, if we can stop people from eating the bush meat, that would stop the launching of an outbreak. But once it starts spreading between people, then it's sometimes going to go. But if we could figure out behavioral change, that would help prevent most deaths from cancer and auto accidents and liver disease in this country. That would prevent deaths from measles and diarrhea and pneumonia in other countries. Um, so we need behavioral change, which perhaps is a timely thing to bring us back that it's really a matter of the heart and God needs to touch hearts for all of us. Have a good day.